Good morning. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4, and this morning we will be beginning our journey east of the Garden of Eden. Let's get started by reading our passage together, Genesis chapter 4, and this morning I will be reading the first 16 verses. Hear now the words of the only true and living God. Now Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother, Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. May God bless the reading and the hearing of his holy and infallible word. You may be seated. Well, this morning we're going to look at our passage together in three points. Our first point will be firstborn, where we will look at God opening Eve's womb and blessing Adam and Eve with children in verses 1 and 2. Our second point will be acceptable worship, where we will look at verses 3 to 7 and examine the offerings that Cain and Abel bring to God. And our last point today will be murder and vengeance 
where we will see in verses 8 through 16 the first murder and the consequences that flowed from it. Before we begin looking at these things, let us go to the Lord in prayer together, asking him for his help. Let's pray. Our Father, who is in heaven, Lord Jesus, seated at his right hand, ruling over us, working among us through your word and your spirit. Oh God, we come to you this morning asking that you would be with us, that you would help us, that you would teach and instruct us, that you would cause our faith to rise, that you would use this morning in our lives to conform us to the image of Christ, to mature the mind of Christ that we possess through your Spirit, that you would increase our faith, that you would increase our obedience. Father, we do not want to neglect to give you thanks and praise for your providential kindness to us to provide for us this place to gather together as your people to worship. We thank you that you have so provided for us that now this building is ours. Father, we ask that you would bless it and that you would use it for your glory among us and in our community as we seek to be salt and light for ministering your gospel as your people in this community. Father, we thank you for all of your kindnesses to us, and we ask that you would help us to not presume upon them, but that we would be ever diligent not to lose our first love of serving you and looking to you and growing in holiness for the things that we could possibly do here in this building and to this building. Oh God, help us to keep our eyes on you. Father, we want to lift up our sister churches to you this morning as well. We lift up Pioneer Valley Baptist Church in Massachusetts. We ask that you would be with our brothers and sisters there, that you would do these same things among them, that you would sanctify them, that you would encourage them, and that you would use them in Chicopee for your glory. Father, we especially lift up to you this morning with heavy hearts our brothers and sisters down in North Wilkesboro at Grace Baptist Church following the death of their beloved Pastor Ryan. Oh God, be with your people this morning. Help them to come to you to offer you worship, trusting that you will minister to them, that you will bind up their wounds. 
Father, do not lead them into the temptation of using the death of one of your saints as a reason to neglect that which you have commanded. Help them to seek you as their strong refuge, as their mighty fortress, as their sustaining grace. Father, we especially lift up his bride, Megan, and their three little children to you. Oh God, we know that you are near to the brokenhearted. We know that you will be near to Megan now, a widow, to their children now fatherless. And Father, we ask that you would be a husband to her, that you would be a father to those precious children. Oh God, we know and we ask that you would help Megan say in faith, though you slayed her husband, yet still she will praise you. And Father, we ask that you would help her to know in a special way that though she cannot understand it, that this is working together for her eternal good. And Father, we plead with you to use this in the life of those children. to soften their hearts, to give them ears to hear your gospel. We ask that you would deliver them from the evil of their hearts being hardened as they mourn and they grieve and they go through times of anger. Oh God, use this for their eternal good as well. And Father, we do not want to neglect to take a few moments and lift up our persecuted brethren throughout the world to you this morning. We lift up our brothers and sisters in Azerbaijan. Father, we ask that you would provide for them, that you would help them to possess your word, for it is illegal to own your word there. God, provide for your people. Help them to be salt and light there in Azerbaijan and use them as the means to see your gospel spread there in a Muslim country. And Father, we ask that you would take out hearts of stone and put in hearts of flesh in this, these families that persecute their family members who convert to Christianity. Oh God, use your people there for your glory. And Father, as we turn our attention from these things to your word that you have providentially put before us this morning, help us, Father, having felt the heaviness of these prayers to continue to feel that heaviness here in our passage this morning. 
Father, I ask that you would use it in the lives of your people to sanctify them. And for the unbelievers among us, I ask that you would use it to help them to feel the burden and weight of their sin that is tied around their backs as it was Christians in Pilgrim's Progress. Father, help them to see and feel that burden and give them godly sorrow over it and grant them the gifts of repentance and faith in your Son this morning, that there would be an increase in those who are lifting praise and thanksgivings to you by the end of this service. Oh God, do these things among us. We wait on you. We are depending on you. And we ask these things of you in our King's name. Amen. In his book, The Picture of Dorian Gray, Oscar Wilde tells the story of a young man who had his portrait painted by an artist. And when presented with the portrait, the main character, Dorian Gray, becomes so enchanted with his own good looks that he wishes that anything bad that would happen to him in the rest of his life would only affect the portrait and not himself. Now in the book, Dorian gets his wish, and then he goes on to live a life of sin and debauchery in which he gives himself to his every passion, even murderous ones. All of which left his physical appearance unchanged because he got his wish, and it only scarred that magical painting. As the years passed, one day Dorian stumbled upon the portrait of himself that he had hidden for many years. And as he looked on it, the, be- the once beautiful portrait was now hideous because it bore all the scars and the damage of the life that he was living. And Dorian knew that it was his own guilt that was portrayed by the painting, and instead of dealing with it, he hid the portrait up in his attic. Now, in the book, one day, the artist who painted the portrait for him came over to his home and discovered it in Dorian's attic and confronted Dorian over what he knew that it meant. He begged Dorian to seek God's forgiveness, but instead of heeding the warning, Dorian grabbed a knife and murdered the artist who had given him the painting. And so now the only thing left that could expose Dorian and his life was the painting. And when he could bear that possibility no longer, Dorian decided to destroy the painting. He grabbed a knife and he thrust it into the painting. And as soon as he did this, the portrait immediately returned to its original beauty and Dorian Gray lay dead on the floor, so disfigured that he was unrecognizable. This morning, as we look at the first murder in the history of mankind, we will see that Cain rises up to murder his own brother, 
Not because Abel had harmed him, not because Abel had wronged him in some way, but like the story of Dorian Gray, Cain rises up to kill Abel because Abel's faith, Abel's offering that pleased God, these things in themselves were a testimony against Cain. Abel's offering was like the picture in Dorian Gray's attic. Abel's offering showed Cain just how marred he was. And as Cain slays Abel in our passage this morning, we will see that though he does indeed murder his brother, we will see that while this is true, Cain also slays himself as he cuts himself off from the presence of the Lord. Let's get started looking at these things this morning, our first point, firstborn. Look at verses 1 and 2 with me again. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain, a worker of the ground. As we begin to look together at our passage this morning, we can immediately see here that after being exiled from the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve began to do that which they were commanded to do back in Genesis 1, 28. They began to be fruitful and multiply. They began to fill the earth. This, after all, is still their mandate from creation. It is still their obligation to fill the earth with holy image bearers of God. It's not as though their sin in the garden had taken away their obligation. However, now their task would be a toilsome task. Their labors would be frustrated. No longer would their children be born holy and upright, but now they will be born sinful. No longer would it depend on the will of the flesh. No longer would it merely depend on Adam and Eve deciding to have children, but now it is going to depend on God granting spiritual life to his elect as Adam and Eve urged the promise of Genesis 3.15 onto their children. Now, when Eve gives birth to Cain, we can see at the end of verse 1 that she confesses that The covenant God has graciously given her a male child. And when we hear this confession of Eve, we should remember the fact that just 10 verses ago, Eve heard God tell Satan that a male offspring was coming from her who was going to defeat the serpent. And just as Satan had no idea which offspring of the woman would be the one that would crush his head, neither did Eve. And so Eve's words here could possibly be a confession of faith in that promise of Genesis 3.15. Perhaps Eve believes that Cain is the one who God has granted that would defeat Satan and deliver them from their slavery to him and their bondage to sin. However, as we will see, the rest of our passage goes on to show that that's not even close to the case. And if that is the case, that this is a profession of faith by Eve and a hope that Cain would be the promised one, our passage this morning is the beginning of a theme that runs throughout the entirety of the rest of Genesis as well as the Old Testament. 
The entire point of Genesis in the Old Testament is the progress of redemption, which means that the entire Old Testament is moving towards a revelation, a revealing of the identity of this promised seed of Genesis 3.15, the identity of the Messiah. Here, east of Eden, it could be anyone. And the rest of the Old Testament is a constant narrowing down of who it could be. And as this narrowing down happens through the Old Testament, we also have simultaneously a constant elimination of potential candidates. We'll see it in a couple of weeks in Genesis 5 that perhaps Noah's father thought that he was the promised offspring when he says that this is the one who's going to give us rest from the curse of the ground. We'll see in Genesis 9 that Noah eliminates himself as a candidate. In Genesis 12, this narrowing down continues as the lineage of the Messiah goes from the possibility of being born by any woman in the line of Seth and Noah, it narrows down to a specific man, Abraham. And then it goes from Abraham to Isaac, not Ishmael, to Jacob, not Esau. And later on, we'll see that it gets narrowed down even further. Not any of Jacob's 12 sons, but only the tribe of Judah. And then it gets narrowed down even further within the tribe of Judah. Not just any family within the tribe of Judah, but only those who are from the line of King David. And all along the way, as these things are happening in the Old Testament, because the Old Testament is about the bringing forth of the Messiah, the birth of this promised offspring of Genesis 3.15 into the world, because that is what the Old Testament is driving at, what we see happening in the Old Testament, is a constant rising of judges and kings in Israel. Many come forward who perhaps will be the deliverer of God's people. And one by one, one after another, they all fall and fail, just as Cain fails here in our passage this morning. And we can see in verse 2 that Eve gives birth to a second son, Abel, and that Abel was a keeper of livestock while Cain was a worker of the ground. And before we move on and look at the actions of Cain in the remainder of our passage, I want to take just a brief moment here and point out something that our culture and the modern world is increasingly ignorant of, but something that is as plain as day here in the first two verses of our passage today. Over the last couple of weeks, we've seen Eve, the first woman, receive the punishment of an increase of pain in childbearing. We've seen Adam name her Eve because she is the mother of all living. And we can see here in our passage this morning that it was Eve, not Adam, that gave birth to two sons. What I want to point out here is that although our modern world and culture may be confused about what a woman is, beloved, our God is not. Praise be to God, in the kingdom of God, you don't have to be a biologist to know what a woman is. Our modern culture and world may be confused about whether or not men can give birth to children, 
But beloved, our creator, our covenant God, is not. And in the kingdom of God, his people are not. Western civilization may be confused about what pronouns to assign to birthing people, but beloved, God and his holy word and his people are not. Brothers and sisters, I urge this on you this morning to think of yourselves as citizens of the kingdom of God, where these confusions that the world possess are not confusing. Do not be taken captive by vain philosophies and the empty deceits that are according to man and not according to Christ. Only women can possess the pronoun she. Only women can give birth to children. And let it be known in this embassy of Christ on this day that our King Jesus finds it to be a grievous sin worthy of hell for those who would seek to undo this created order established by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in the beginning. Well, after making that brief application, let's move on now to our second point, acceptable worship. Follow along with me as I read verses 3 to 7 again. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Now, as we can see here in verses 3 and 4, after their birth, there's some passage of time, and in the passage of time, Cain and Abel brought offerings to the covenant God, and we should immediately notice a distinction between these offerings that gives us some foreshadowing, perhaps. Cain brings an offering to Yahweh from the ground that God had cursed, while Abel brings an offering of the best of his flocks, firstborn. Now, as we begin to think about the differences between Cain and Abel's offering, we need to realize that in our passage, it seems like they had just been born. However, there is obviously a good bit of time that passes in verse 2, because if Cain and Abel are old enough to work the ground, if Abel is old enough to keep sheep, if they are both old enough to bring offerings to God, if they are old enough to do these things, then they are not infants. They are not little children. They are young men. And the reason why I take the time to point this out is only to say that this was not Cain and Abel's first rodeo. What do I mean? Cain and Abel are young men. And they have more than likely grown up watching Adam and Eve and learning from them as they made offerings so that they could have communion with God. We saw this two weeks ago when we talked about God restoring some level of fellowship with Adam and Eve when he covered them with, Adam's, with animal skins. 
And God is omnipresent. God is everywhere. But we must acknowledge that the scriptures indicate that there was a special presence of God in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. There's also a special presence of God with Adam and Eve east of Eden. You can see it if you'll peek down real quick to our last verse today. If you peek down to verse 16, you can see that Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, were in the presence of the Lord because verse 16 is very explicit that Cain went away from God's special presence. So all of that to say that here east of Eden, Cain and Abel knew what it was to make offerings to God. They grew up watching it. And so while the speed of the narrative here in the first seven verses goes from their birth to them being young men very quickly, don't let that confuse you into thinking that they're just making these offerings ignorantly. This isn't their first rodeo. They aren't just winging it, doing the best that they can. They have seen their parents make offerings all of their lives. And as we will see in the conversation that God has with Cain in verses 6 and 7, it seems rather obvious that God indicates that Cain knows that he did not bring an offering that was acceptable. So we can see here in verses 3 to 5 that There's a clear distinction between Cain and Abel's offering, the most obvious of which is that God accepts the one and he rejects the other. Beloved, let us notice that what God thinks about our offerings is the determining factor. The determining factor here in our passage isn't what Cain and Abel thought was best, It wasn't what they would like to do or what they thought would be really special for God. No, beloved, the determining factor is what God accepts and what God rejects. And the only way for us or Cain and Abel to know the difference between the two isn't trial and error. The only way we can know the worship that God will accept is for him to tell us. As we are thinking about these offerings, we need to remember that God removed fig leaves from Adam and Eve and covered them with animal skins. So Cain, in a sense, is offering God fig leaves. He offers to God the fruit of the ground and does not follow the pattern set by God in the garden that communion with him is restored through the shedding of blood. Also notice that Cain's offering is clearly described in contrast to Abel's. Look at verse 4 and see that Abel not only brought the shed blood of an animal, but he brought the best of his flock. Abel not only brought a firstborn, but he brought of the fat portions of his firstborn. He looked over all of the firstborn in his flock and he said, that's the best one. That's the one I'm taking to God. And the contrast in our passage may indicate that Cain just brought his leftovers. This whole scene makes me think of a phrase that I've heard a pastor use before when talking with people who tell him that I just worship God in my own way. I find communion. I don't need to gather with God's people on the Lord's Day. I find communion with God in nature. That's how I interact with God. And this pastor is famously quipped, well, you worship God in your way, 
and I will worship him in his. Well, now that we've seen these contrasting offerings and that God accepted Abel's but rejects Cain's, now that we've seen this, beloved, let's take a moment here and notice the kind of offering that God accepts as well as the kind that he rejects. As we are thinking about this, let us learn that we must offer worship to God on his terms, not on ours. Beloved, we cannot be inventors of the kind of worship that we just want to offer to God because we think it's special. It makes us feel good. We must worship God in the way that he has commanded us to worship him. And the very first step in this, beloved, is to realize that our God only accepts worship offered to him in the name of his Son. Our Lord Jesus said himself, I am the way, I am the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Beloved, when we come to the Lord on Sunday mornings, we must never trust in ourselves. We must not have a good Monday through Saturday and feel like we've earned the right to come and feel good in God's presence. Beloved, we must always keep before our eyes the fact that there is only one perfect sacrifice that can effectually cause our worship to rise as a sweet-smelling aroma to our God, and that is worship offered up in the name of Christ by people united to him in faith. The unbelievers among us this morning, learn from this passage and heed my words. Young children who have yet to Repent of your sin and trust in Christ. Do not think that you can come and sing praises to God and he is going to receive them from you because you're cute and because, or because your parents are Christians. God only receives worship offered to him in the perfect name of his son by faith. And for unbelieving adults among us, learn from this passage, and heed my words, your creator will not coexist with other gods. When it comes to worship and salvation, all people on the planet are not God's children. Friend, you need to know that, the on, that only those who repent of their sins, only those who look to the perfect spotless lamb, only those in all the world who look to Christ in faith, only those who have been washed in his blood, only they can offer worship that is acceptable and pleasing to God. Only they can offer worship that he will accept. Unbelieving friend, you need to know that doing the best you can is not good enough. Loving your mama, feeding the poor, digging wells, doing all the nice things, being a good person, you need to know that that's not good enough for God. If you would go to God, then you must learn from Cain that you must go on his terms. 
an unbelieving friend, his terms, if you would go to him and have him receive your worship, is that you would repent of your sins, that you would believe that your best, your good deeds, your good works, your being a good person, you must believe that that's not good enough. You must believe that he only accepts the perfect life and the perfect sacrifice of his one and only beloved son, Jesus Christ. And you must believe that you cannot have communion with God except through Jesus. And if you would have communion with God, then you must believe that Jesus Christ is the perfect sacrifice, that he lived a perfect, sinless, righteous life, and that he lived it for you. You must believe that. You must believe that he offered himself up to God in your place, not just for some ethereal idea of sin, but for your sin. You must believe that. You must believe that he drunk God's wrath to the dregs for you that he was a sinless sacrifice that shed his precious blood for the forgiveness of your particular sins. You must believe that only by and through him can you have forgiveness of your sins and eternal life. An unbelieving friend, having heard the gospel, having heard the good news, I pray that you have godly sorrow, that you feel the weight of your sin dragging you down through the grave into hell, and that you will look to Christ for your forgiveness. I plead with you to do this today. Now to my brothers and sisters in Christ, once we realize, once we realize that God only accepts that worship which is offered through the blood of Christ, once we have that realization, we still have a question to ask ourselves that is a sanctifying question, a question about sanctification. And I stress that this is a sanctification question because I don't want to give the impression here that it's the quality of the offering of your worship that gives you right standing before God. I don't want to give you the impression that once you've been saved that you can somehow now you're able to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and approach God on your own terms. But with that being said, Nothing that I say following is inconsistent with that. For those of us who have been justified by faith alone in Christ alone, we must ask ourselves an examining question about our sanctification. And that question is, what kind of offerings do you bring to your covenant God, beloved? Abel brought his best, the best of his best. Cain seems to have brought his leftovers. And we can see in our passage today which one God is pleased with. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you should be giving God your first fruits, not your leftovers, when you give a portion of the resources that he has provided for you and your family. And you must do so with joy. And so the sanctifying question that you must ask yourself is when you give... Are you offering it with joy, or does it squeak out of your wallet? Does it come from a begrudging hand? 
And along with this, what kind of worship do you offer God in your life? We have been commanded to be living sacrifices for our God, but are we seeking to do so? Are we seeking to examine our lives like Abel examined his flock? And we take our fat portions, we take our best gifts, we take our highest levels of energy and we give them and offer them to God. Or do we give God the time and the effort and the energy we have left over after we've done all the things we really want to do. You can probably recognize this excuse in things like, I don't have time to pray. I'm too busy to read God's word. I've planned other things that are going to take me away from gathering together to worship him. Beloved, we have been commanded to give of the fat portions of our lives. And what kind of worship do we offer to him on the Lord's day when we gather together as his people? Do you come prepared on Sunday mornings? Do you, to the best of your ability, plan your Saturdays so that when you gather together with God's people on Sundays that you have energy and zeal to worship him? Do you spend time in his word to stir up that zeal within you? And when you worship, when you sing, when you pray, is your heart and your mind in it? Do you actually offer up sincere prayers and a joyful noise and song? Or do you take the time of our prayers together as an opportunity to do what my grandmother used to say, I'm just resting my eyes. Do you mumble your way through the songs only if you feel like it? Oh, beloved, may this not be so among us. If this is you, then you must repent. If we expect the world to hear the gospel proclamation and be willing to repent at the truth, the obvious truth, and surely we, judgment begins at the household of God. Surely we must hear these things that perhaps are offensive to us in some ways. Surely we as God's people who have God's spirit in him, who have the mind of Christ, surely we can hear these things and soberly look at our lives and examine them and honestly say to ourselves, there are areas in which I need to repent and offer up to my God worship and sacrifice that is pleasing to him. A Reformed Baptist pastor in Taylorsville, Paul White, recently posted on Facebook a good exhortation to us in this vein. And while he's speaking only of singing, I pray that you will apply what he says to all worship in every area of your life, whether on the Lord's day or in your daily life. He said, are you assured of grace and salvation in Christ? Then make it your practice to sing loud praises to God. Would you like to have an increase in assurance of your salvation? Then make it your practice to sing loud praises to God. I never met a sulking, mumbling, whispering saint who, when probed, 
was not often in doubts about the state of their soul. And I never met a happy and assured saint who was content to mumble his praises to God. Christians should be the loudest and most joyful singers. Birds sing at the sight of dawn. Should we not sing loudest who have had the sun of righteousness rise in our souls? Beloved, we must learn that our God does not look at outer appearances. Our God knows whether or not we are too busy to do this, that, or the other thing. Our God knows if we're too busy or if we're just really making an excuse not to gather together to worship him or gather together to be nurtured and fellowship with his people in small groups. Or He knows whether or not we're really too busy or we're just making excuses to not come on Thursday nights to lift up the prayer needs and bear one another's burdens. Our God knows these things, and we must be sober-minded as we think of them ourselves. Our God looks at our hearts when we bring our offerings of worship and a holy life to him. He, he examines us as he examines our offerings, and though our justification, though our salvation is not at stake in our offerings, I'm not saying that, though that is true, Though that is infallibly true, we should not pretend like the day of Christ is not going to be painful if we suffer the loss that Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 3. When he says, according to the grace of God given to me like a skillful, skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Guess who that someone else is, beloved? That's us. We are building in our generation upon the foundation that has already been laid. He goes on, let each one, each one, not just us corporately, but let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, Precious stones, and then he goes on to list something not like those precious things, wood, hay, straw. Each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If we would receive a reward, beloved, we must build with precious stones, with our fat portions, with the first fruits of our times and our energies and the gifts that God has given us, not our leftovers. And he ends by saying, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. And as we move on to the last part of verse 5, we can see that Cain got angry that God accepted Abel's offering but rejected his. Now, given the application that I just made to us, I hope and I pray as one of your pastors that you don't recognize yourself in Cain's response here at the end of verse 5. 
And I know that we just made some applications to ourselves, but surely we must ask ourselves some more questions here as well. Brothers and sisters, do you get annoyed at the godliness of others? Does God's expectations of his people to gather together to worship him annoy you? Like you just got to do it every week. Can't we take some time off? Jesus, please stop ministering to me by your word and spirit. Can't, I need a break. Does it annoy you when you listen to other people praying? Do you find yourself in your heart saying, enough, that's enough. Shut up, let's, let's move on, please. Does it annoy you? Do you find yourself annoyed when those around you are singing praises to God with a joyful heart, making a joyful noise, though off key a bit? If you're around me when we are singing, you know that pain. But does it annoy you or does it give you thankfulness that one day, you're going to be in a worship service and that old saint who can't sing a lick is gone. And you know what, beloved? You're going to miss. You're going to miss their singing off key. Does it annoy you that others give sacrificially to the kingdom work of this church as God has commanded us while you give your leftovers? Now, if you feel like I'm speaking to you right now, you're right. I am. If you're wondering how I know these things, it's because I used to think and do these same types of things myself. That's where these examples come from. They come from my own heart, my own remembrance, my own recalling to my mind as I work through this passage of Scripture of my own sin. That's where these things come from. And beloved, I am here to tell you as one of your pastors who loves you and desires to watch over your soul and desires to see you stand before Christ on that last day with a clear conscience, I'm here to exhort you that if you are struggling in these ways, then you must repent. You must. You just must. Stop making excuses for yourself. Soberly examine your own heart, your own motivations, Repent of those things that are sinful and thank God for those things that you see are his acts of grace in your life. Beloved, we must repent of these attitudes and we must seek to flee from the attitude of Cain that we see in this passage because the attitude of Cain leads to hating your brothers and sisters. It begins with being annoyed by them, but it ends with you hating them. And Jesus and the New Testament are very clear that if we come to hate our brothers and sisters in our heart, then we are murderers. And we do not have the Holy Spirit abiding in us, and we do not possess eternal life. I do not know if anyone here, in here, is going down this road, but it is a road that leads to perdition. Beloved, you must repent and turn again to the narrow way. Brothers and sisters, never forget that these things, even our passage here at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis 4, these things in the Old Testament were written for our benefit. We, are infall we infallibly know that. We've been told that in the New Testament. These things, what we are looking at this morning is written for our benefit. So see in our passage today, not only a means of instruction to us, 
but also one of God's gracious means of preserving us. Seeing to it that we persevere to the end. That we are exhorted and our light, our eyes are open to these things that we weren't thinking about, that were just kind of in the in the dark closets, but God is shining a light on them. See that as a gracious act of God to preserve us to the end, for He has told us that only those who persevere to the end will be saved. Beloved, learn from Cain that when we seek to worship and approach God on our own terms, when we get frustrated at our brethren who will not join us in that half-hearted worship, be instructed that when Cain did this, we can see at the end of verse 5 that he became angry. His face fell. Cain had hopes and expectations that what he wanted to offer to God, God would receive it. And he became disappointed, anger, angry, and bitter when God rejected it. And as we move on to verses 6 and 7, we can see that God speaks to Cain. We can see in verses 6 and 7 that God sees and knows that Cain is angry, and so he speaks to him. God asks him, why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? God tells Cain that he knows, God knows, that Cain knows that he has not offered acceptable worship. God is telling him that he knows that he has not done well, and so he is not being accepted, and it should not be a surprise to him. Cain should not be surprised about this. It's like when kids get mad at their parents when their parents punish them for disobeying them or sinning in some other way as though it was the parents' fault that the kid did something wrong. And like that bitterness that can bubble up in our kids towards us, their parents, even though it's their own fault, we see God warning Cain in the second half of verse 7, and if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Sin crouches like an animal hunting its prey. What God is telling Cain sounds a lot like what he tells us through the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 5 when he says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Older saints, I know that you know the truths of these things. How sin so deceptively sneaks up on us. You find yourself almost being devoured by it were it not for God's grace. But young people, you need to learn and hear this lesson well for you do not have the life experience that we have. You may think that dishonoring or disobeying your parents is fine because what you want to do isn't that big of a deal. You lie to yourself and say, my parents are just too strict. Look at what other parents are letting their kids do. And this ignorant thinking causes you to think that your frustration with them isn't a big deal. Not only is it not a big deal, it's justified. You're in the right. They're too strict. Look at all the other things people get to do. 
Why are they being so strict with me? Young people, if you've never heard this from your parents, then hear it from a minister of Christ today. If you are thinking in these ways, you need to know that sin is crouching at your door. Satan is seeking to devour you. And if you would rule over it, if you would flee from Satan and draw near to God, then you must repent of this way of thinking. You must learn from Cain in our passage this morning. God is warning Cain, if you will not live in this world according to my standards, if you will not come to me on my terms, then sin is stalking you. Sin's desire is contrary to you. Sin wants to drag you to hell. It hates you. It wants to consume you. It wants to start small. But we know, those older saints in the room, we know sin never stays small. It wants to consume your entire life. And though you can't see how that possibly is going to happen, I promise you as someone who it has happened to, it will. But you must rule over it. As God exhorted Cain, you must come to God on his terms. You must live in the way that he commands. And in doing so, you will rule over the sin of autonomy that would have you go your own way. That sin that would hate, cause you to hate God and hate your brother or sister in Christ. Beloved God, our God has put it into the very fabric of his creation that if you live in his world, his way, then you will receive his approval and his reward. What you sow, you will reap. And beloved, we need to understand that living in his world, his way, means being a person that is constantly acknowledging their sin before him and repenting of their sin before him. It means to be a person who constantly looks outside of themselves and their own good deeds to Jesus Christ in faith. And a person who constantly seeks to strive after holy living, not seeing how close I can get to the world without being burnt, as though a man can hold fire close to his chest without being burnt, but seeing how close I can get to God and holy living, and regardless of what the world thinks about me, that is our call, beloved. And it looks a lot like taking up your cross and following Jesus in the death march. Looks a lot like putting off the old man. Or as John Owen said, be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. It looks a lot like sowing to the spirit, not to the flesh. That's what following Christ, living in God's world, God's way, looks like for us, beloved. Let's move on to our last point today and see the outcome of Cain's anger. Look at verses 8 through 16 again. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? 
And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. As we begin our final point, we can see in verse 8 that Cain speaks to Abel and in some way seems to have have deceived him into going out into the field so he could murder him. God had not accepted Cain's offering and so like Satan, knowing that he cannot possibly attack the God that has offended him, Cain attacks the next best thing, God's image. Right here, Cain shows himself to not be of the seed of the woman. Right here, Cain shows himself to not be the promised offspring that perhaps Eve thought he potentially was. As Cain rises up to murder his brother, we can see in his actions both human responsibility and the sovereignty of God. We can see that Cain freely chooses to murder his brother Abel. And in the same action, he was simultaneously an unwitting fulfillment of God's sovereign curse upon the serpent that there would always be strife, conflict, enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Cain has raised his hand and identified which seed he belongs to. Now, as we are moving through this section of our passage, it would be easy for us to just focus completely on Cain's actions here. This is the first murder in the history of mankind. It is momentous. It is tragic. It is awful. It is wicked. And while we are going to look at his actions, because that is obviously the focus of this passage, while we are going to do that as we get into verses 9 to 15, we, beloved, should not ignore our brother Abel. Abel, who in this passage has hardly any mentions. It's all about Cain. But we are told in Hebrews 4 that by faith, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. You see, beloved, that Abel is your brother in Christ. Abel had faith in God's promise of Genesis 3.15. And so just like you, brothers and sisters, though he did not know Jesus' name, though he did not have as much divine revelation as we do, though all of that is true, our brother Abel had faith in the promises of God, all of which find their yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Our brother Abel had faith in Jesus Christ. 
What we are witnessing here in Genesis 4 is the first martyr of Christ's church. The first death of the elect that Christ has been gathering to himself under him, the head, since the foundation of the world. The first soldier in the Lord's army to lay down his life for his king. And while we can think of Abel as a victim, that's not all that he was, brothers and sisters. We must remember and internalize that our God makes foolish the wisdom of this world. He turns the wisdom of the world onto its head such that when Cain murders Abel, he thinks he's going to shut him up. But he doesn't. Abel still speaks. Even in Abel's death, Abel's testimony had just begun. It lives, even today, even among us as we are looking at it and hearing about it and being encouraged by it, to be willing to be counted worthy to suffer for the name of our king. And we don't know what Cain said to Abel before he murdered him. I don't know if he tried to talk him out of worshiping God the way that God had appointed. I don't know what Cain said, if anything, to Abel. But what we do know is that our brother Abel died in faith. And we know, beloved, that his death was precious in the sight of his God. And our brother's death should likewise be precious in our sight. No less precious than our brother Ryan Marlowe's death is in our sight. Though it is nearer to us than Abel's, it should not be less precious to us, beloved. Our brother Abel exhorts us this morning that he died in faith. He died trusting in the promises of God. And he calls out to us, follow me. As I follow Christ. Soak that in, beloved, as we jump into Cain's interaction or the God's interaction with Cain. Look at verse 9, and we can see that God comes to Cain. Like God had gone to Adam and Eve, God comes to Cain with questions. We can see in verse 9 that just as God had asked fallen Adam, Where are you? Here in our passage today, he asked Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? And in Cain's response, we can see the brazenness, the audacity of sin. One generation removed from the fall, and Cain's heart is so hardened, his conscience is so seared that he can answer his creator not with the half-truths like his parents did, but with an outright lie. Cain lies to God in the second half of verse 9 when he says, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? How would I know where he is, God? Am I his mommy that needs to hold his hand everywhere he goes? Come on, God, don't be stupid. Abel's a grown man. He can keep up with himself. As we can see in verse 10, God does not respond to Cain's brazenness the way we would. If I was God and Cain responded to me in that way, I think that after hearing that response, I would just treat Cain like Lot's wife. Boom, pillar of salt, you're done. I'd probably turn around and walk away and mumble to myself, how you like them apples, you idiot? 
talk to me like I'm stupid, like I didn't already know what you had done. And then in my frustration, I'd turn around and turn the pillar of salt back into Cain and say, did you really think I was that dumb? And then boom, back to a pillar of salt. So let's all be thankful together that I'm not God. And now let's look at and be instructed by the patience and long-suffering and mercy with which God responds to Cain in the next few verses. Here in verse 10, God seeks to draw Cain out. You can see here that he almost pleads with him to move beyond his arrogant pride and consider the gravity of what he had done. You can see this when God asks him, what have you done? And then God continues, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Cain, what you have done is weighty and you are so blind to it. You thought that by killing your brother whose actions of offering me acceptable worship made you feel condemned. You thought that by killing him, you would justify yourself and shut him up. But Cain, the voice of his blood cries to me. It cries out for justice. His blood that was soaked into the ground and his body that is returning to dust cries out for justice. And Cain, justice is what I will give my servant. Before we move on to verse 11, we need to recognize here that this same principle is at play right now, today, in our own lives, in our own experience of the world, beloved. Unbelievers currently do and will hate us. There will always be conflict, enmity, strife between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Unbelievers will hate us even if we never say a word to them. They will hate us because our lives of seeking to please God are a living and breathing testimony and witness against them. Beloved, you need to understand that holy living itself, all by itself, holy living will cause unbelievers to hate you for no reason. This fact is where phrases like, you're so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good come from. It's where modern phrases that follow mass shootings and other tragedies come from. We don't want your thoughts and prayers. Do something. As though praying to our God and creator is not something. It's where accusations like, well, you just think you're holier than thou come from. It's where the famous and slanderous accusation against the Puritans by H.L. Mencken comes from. Puritanism is the haunting fear that someone, somewhere, may be happy. Beloved, we have to learn to not run from this type of persecution. Rather, we must learn to embrace these things and to count it a joy that our King has counted us worthy to suffer for His name. For he has granted to us that not only, as Paul says in Philippians 1, that we would believe in him, but that we all might also suffer with him. It's why we are told that everyone, with no exception, everyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, as we move on to verse 11, we can see that the consequences of Cain murdered, murdering his brother is that God curses him. This is very weighty that God curses him directly because even when Adam broke the covenant of works and sinned, God cursed the ground 
because of Adam. But now, but Cain's actions of murdering his brother, God, it's almost as though God takes the curse that he put upon the ground as it receives Abel's brother and gives it to Cain. He curses Cain with a direct divine curse. Now that we see this curse, we have to look to verse 12 to understand exactly what it means when God says that Cain is cursed from the ground. We can see in verse 12 that when God curses Cain from the ground, we can see that this means that Cain, who we need to remember from the end of verse 2, was a worker of the ground. Cain would no longer be able to get strength from the ground. Now, I imagine that Cain was probably very proficient at working the ground and dealing with the thorns and the thistles that resulted from God's cursing it. It seems as though Cain was probably an excellent crop farmer. But now, because of his murdering his brother and spilling his blood on this ground that he so loved to work, now the grain, the ground would no longer provide for Cain. No longer would Cain, a worker of the ground, no longer would his efforts be able to produce, produce the food that he needed to live. Cain, who was a worker of the ground, because he had murdered his brother, who was a keeper of sheep, would now have to abandon the ground. And ironically, he would have to raise livestock to provide food for himself and his future family. It's almost as though part of his curse was that he was going to have to do the work of the one that he had murdered in order to provide for himself and his family. And in verse 13, we can see that Cain had been disabused of that prideful, cocky attitude that he had back in verse 9. Here in verse 13, after hearing God's curse upon him, we can see that Cain is sobered up. As he responds to God, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Beloved, we need to see here that even though Cain is of the seed of the serpent, even though he obviously suppressed the truth of God in unrighteousness when he murdered his brother, even though all of that is true, we need to recognize here that because Cain is made in the image of God, because that is true, he has God's moral law stamped on his heart of stone. And you can see it in how he begins and ends his plea to God in verses 13 and 14. He begins, my punishment is greater than I can bear. And he ends, whoever finds me will kill me. Cain shows that he knows that murder is wrong because even though he did it to his brother, he doesn't want anybody to do it to him. It's as plain as day that Cain knows that his curse is greater than he can bear. He knows that the ground is no longer going to yield its strength to him. He knows the truth that sin was crouching at his door. And instead of exercising dominion over it, he was devoured by it. Cain knows that he is going to be a fugitive and wanderer. But even though he knows all these things, we need to recognize that Cain, here in Cain's complaint to God, we need to recognize that what we are seeing here is not godly sorrow, it's self-pity. 
Cain is sorry for what he did because he is going to suffer the consequences. He's not sorry because what he did offended God and ended his brother's life. Learn this distinction in your own life, beloved, and make sure that when you sin, that the source of your sorrow is found in the fact that you have offended God, that you have hurt your communing with him, and not in the fact that you got caught and there's going to be some consequences. Because that former type of repentance, that godly sorrow that's born out of offending God and communing with him, being affected, that kind of sorrow brings repentance, forgiveness, restoration, communing with your God. While the latter is just sorry that you're having to suffer some consequences, that brings bitterness and damnation. Well, we can see in verse 15 that God responds to Cain with mercy. Cain deserves what's coming his way. When Cain says it's more than he can bear, I'm sure most of us have heard a phrase and probably said a phrase that we've all heard from our parents. Well, you should have thought of that before you did it. You didn't want somebody to kill you. You should have thought of that first. But that's not how God responds to Cain. When Cain acknowledges that his punishment is more than he can bear and that the consequences of it will be someone murdering him, someone doing to him what he had done to his brother, we see God responds, not so. Brothers and sisters, we should be thankful that our God does not give us what we deserve. Even when Cain is only expressing self-interest here, not godly sorrow, even here our God shows himself to be long-suffering. And even though Cain deserves to be punished by others, God has not yet appointed government to yield the sword in this way, and God has never and will never approve of vigilantes. And we should be instructed by the fact that God does not condone other people sinning against us because we sin against them, and likewise, he does not condone us sinning against others because they have sinned against us. We should be instructed, especially young people, that saying, well, they started it, is not a valid argument to God. And hasn't our Lord taught us that we are to not return evil for evil? But as his people, the citizens of his kingdom, we are to return those who would slay us, we are to return good to them. We must learn that when people sin against us, we are not to say in our hearts or to God, well, they started us, they deserve what's coming. But we must pray, Lord, forgive us of our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Oh God, do not lead us into the temptation of returning evil for evil, but deliver us from that evil that your kingdom would come and your will would be done in my life, on this earth, in my generation, as it is in heaven. God responds here in verse 15 to Cain with mercy. He declares that if an individual murders Cain, then a sevenfold vengeance shall come upon that person. And then the last part of verse 15, we can see that God put a mark on Cain that would ensure that this would not happen to him. And while we don't know exactly what the mark of Cain was, 
What we do know is that it was not a curse. Cain deserved death. He deserved to be executed by his fellow man. But this mark that God gave to him was an act of divine mercy. So while there have been many ideas about exactly what the mark of Cain was, it was even a means used to justify slavery here in America, most of those ideas turn marks, this mark of God's long-suffering towards Cain, his patience and mercy upon Cain, those types of perversions turn it into a curse upon him and his descendants. And as is true with all the twistings of Scripture, this was and is a perversion of what the Bible teaches. This was a gracious act of God towards Cain, and the perversions of what this mark is will receive a just condemnation in the end. So looking at our last verse today, we can see in verse 16 that after God has mercy on Cain, we can see that Cain leaves the presence of the Lord in order to go further east and settle in the land of Nod. What a devastating end to this episode of Cain and Abel here in Genesis 4. Adam and Eve have been driven out of the Garden of Eden. Their son Abel has been murdered by their firstborn, and now Cain has been driven from the very presence of God. Beloved, as we close this morning and prepare to spend some time reflecting on our passage, no doubt you have felt the heaviness of our past few weeks together since the fall of mankind in chapter 3, and it just rolled on today in the murder of Cain and at Cain murdering Abel. But beloved, let us learn this lesson that while there is hope to be found in the promise of Genesis 3.15, sin has devastating consequences. We do ourselves no favors if we walk away from these last few messages without feeling the heaviness of them, without feeling the burden, the weight that comes with sin. We do ourselves no favor if these last few messages do not cause us to acknowledge our own sin before our Creator and look to His Son in faith and remember what He has accomplished for us. Well, as we end this morning, I want to pick up on the words of Cain from verse 9 and make one final application to us. Look back at verse 9 and remember that Cain responds to God's question by saying, Am I my brother's keeper? Brothers and sisters, we live in a country that began out of a strong sense of independence. And we currently live in a culture with an even stronger sense of individuality. And there are ways in which those are good things, because we will all have to give an account of ourselves before God but we need to recognize that one of the things that we will have to give an account for on that last day is how we as individuals helped our brothers and sisters in Christ. How we as individuals loved our neighbors. 
Beloved, the ethic of our king that he has given to us is that we are our brothers and sisters' keepers. We have been commanded by our king to give, give, give of ourselves for others' eternal good. We are our brothers and sisters' keepers. We are to bear their burdens. We are to participate in their joys. We are to exhort one another so that no one is hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Beloved, we are our brothers and sisters' keepers. We are to restore our repentant brothers and sisters with gentleness because the love of Christ covers a multitude of sins. We are to forgive those who sin against us as God in Christ has forgiven us. Beloved, we are to walk together with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace because we are one another's keeper. Oh yes, it is Christ that holds us fast, but one of the means that our King uses to hold us fast is each other. And we are to provide for each other when we are in need, as James teaches us, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. As we consider this Christian responsibility, beloved, to be our brothers and sisters' keepers, trusting in Christ to hold us fast, let us close with the words of our Savior about the last day from Matthew 25. Our King instructs us in this vein from Matthew 25 when he says about the last day, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him, he will gather all the nations. And he will separate people one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. And the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we send you, see you hungry and feed you? or thirsty and give you drink? And, and when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them. Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Oh, brothers and sisters, we are one another's keeper. And when we serve one another, we do it to the king that we are united to. Let's pray. Father in heaven, 
We come before you now in this time of prayerful reflection, asking that you would take your word and by your spirit that you would apply it to us, your people, that you would sanctify us and that you would help us to grow in holiness. You would help us to be your ambassadors here, that we would not just be hearers of your word, but that we would examine ourselves and that we would be doers. All the while, not trusting in ourselves, but trusting in the truth that we are to work out our salvation, knowing that it is you who are at work in us to will and to work for your good pleasure. Help us not to tie ourselves in knots trying to figure out where that begins and ends, but help us to trust that you are at work in us to see the inner man being renewed and the outer man wasting away. And Father, I plead with you in the name of your Son to bring to remembrance now the gospel proclamation to the unbelieving children among us as well as your unbelieving visitors, that you would bring it to remembrance now and that you would use it to grant them the gifts of repentance and faith, that they would have godly sorrow, that they would come to you today and that it would be the day of your power as you prophesied in the Old Testament that your people would freely offer themselves to you on the day of your power. Oh God, we plead with you that today would be just such a day. Father, help us now as we pray and as we reflect and as we continue through the remainder of this Lord day, Lord's Day. Help us to set Christ apart as holy in our hearts. Being ready to not only give an answer for the hope that is within us when asked, but being ready to suffer for the sake of the name of our King, knowing that we are citizens of his kingdom. And it should not be a surprise to us when the canes of this world rise up against us to slay us. Oh, Father, help us. We know that though they slay us, that we can still have confidence that Jesus Christ will build his church. And the gates of hell and the seed of the serpent will not prevail against it. Oh, Jesus, we thank you. We praise you. We ask that you would rule over us as our king now. Amen.